You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 25. That's where we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Exodus this morning. We've been in a series called Be Set Free. We've been looking at how God set the people of Israel free from slavery in Egypt, and as we're doing that, we're considering what it means for God to set us free in different areas of our lives as well. Uh, We're quickly coming to the end of this series. We're going to be starting a new series next, uh, well, in a couple weeks from now, just the Sunday after Easter is when our new series will begin. Um, But today, we, we have a very interesting topic here in the book of Exodus. Interestingly, this is actually the most talked about topic in the entire book. This topic gets more airtime in this book than any other topic. It's pretty interesting. And to really get a good grasp of what it is, we're going to move through it a little quicker than we usually do. So we're going to kind of zoom out a little bit and take a big picture, kind of look at the topic as a whole. The topic is going to be this. What is required in order for us to have a relationship with God? We also invite you to use the YouVersion Bible app. If you go into the menu and click on events, you'll see an event in there and there's lots of stuff in there, which is Particularly helpful this week because we have a lot of pictures that would be good. If you have them on your phone, you can get a little bit closer view of them. Let's go ahead and begin our reading today from Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they should take a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold and silver, bronze, purple and blue and scarlet yarn and fine twilled linen goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat's skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that this morning as we open your word, Lord, we know that you are faithful to speak to us, and so we ask that you would do that, and that you'd give us ears to hear your word to us this morning, to apply it to our lives, and Lord, we pray that as we do that, Lord, that it would bear much fruit, Lord, that you would be working in us through your word to transform us and make us into the people you're calling us to be. So Lord, we ask that we would receive your word in our hearts and in our minds, in Jesus' name, amen. So I remember the night, I'll never forget it, uh, I had been planning it for months. You know, I had ordered everything, I had organized several people who had been given tasks that they were supposed to carry out at specific times and specific places. Everything was planned perfectly, except nothing went the way I had hoped it would. I was, uh, it was scheduled to all happen on a Tuesday night, but then on Monday night she told me that she didn't want to go. Uh, she said, couldn't we just go on Thursday? And I said, no, we can't go on Thursday. We're going on Tuesday. So I met her on Tuesday at her front door, and we walked together uh, first to the theater where we had tickets to the show. But as we sat through that show, the show was absolutely terrible. I mean, really awful. It was the worst. And she wanted to leave. I wanted to leave too, but I told her, no, we're not leaving. We're sticking this out. We can't leave. And she asked, why, why can't we leave? Let's just go. Why are you making me sit through this? And I said, 
Well, I made up some excuse because I couldn't tell her the real reason. The real reason was because I had been planning this for months, everything, several people. It was already in place. They had tasks to carry out at specific times in specific places, and she was growing increasingly frustrated, and I I could sympathize with that because, honestly, I wanted to leave too. The show was truly awful, but you see, I had planned everything for months in advance. There were people and things set in place that were happening at specific times, and it was all set in motion, and finally... The show ended, felt like it lasted forever, but it finally ended, and then we went outside. She was quite mad at me at this point for making her sit through this awful show. And then we walked past this rundown park, and in the park, there were dozens of candles, and there were flowers all over, and she said, oh, look, how sad, someone must have died in the park. So I said, well, let's take a closer look. So we did. And then I knelt down in the mud and I asked her, will you marry me? See, at that point we had spent over a year getting to know each other and she had gotten to know who I was and what I was about and and where I wanted to go. And much to my pleasure, she said, yes. And over the next few months, we had a lot of discussions. Uh, We talked about our future together. We talked about our expectations. We talked about several guidelines and a course and direction that our lives would take together. And seven months later, we made it official. We had a ceremony and we took vows of love and faithfulness to each other. And then after that, we began to live together. We moved in together. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because throughout the Bible, God likens his relationship with his people to a marriage. And what we see here in Exodus is really a love story about how God and his people came to live in a covenant relationship He had reached out to them in love when they were in distress. He had showed them kindness and he had fought for them on their behalf to set them free from slavery. He led them and he provided for them in the wilderness. He gave them shade from the unrelenting desert sun. He gave them water to drink and food to eat. And after months of them getting to know who he was through all of these things, he made them an incredible offer that they could enter into a covenant together. They could make this a permanent arrangement. He would be their God and they could be his people. And he asked them, essentially, in this picture, he said, will you marry me? And enthusiastically, they said, yes, a thousand times yes. And then he laid it all out for them to discuss what this is going to look like, what kind of relationship they would have, the expectations and the guidelines and the promises. And then, as we saw last week in our study, there was a ceremony and they made it official. And so what comes next following this paradigm, this pattern of a marriage? Well, in a marriage, the next step would be that you would begin to start your lives together. You'd begin living together. And that's actually the exact thing that we see in this story as well. Here in Exodus chapters 25 through 31, we see the people have already entered into a covenant with God. They've had a ceremony. They've made it official. And now God is going to give them instructions about building a structure called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent. You see, the people of Israel were living in tents at this point. And so God says, well, then I need a tent too. I need a tent to live among you. And he says there, the purpose of this tent, we read it in just our reading right now. In Exodus 25, verse 8, he says, here's the why I need this tent, so that I may dwell in your midst. So I may dwell in your midst. The title of today's message is A Dwelling Place for God, and there are three things that are so important for us to see in order for us to really understand the tabernacle and what this all means. First of all, the tabernacle was intended to be a slice of heaven 
on earth, the slice of heaven on earth. Secondly, even though God was coming near to the people, there remained an incredible and impassable wall of separation. And thirdly, and most importantly, we're going to talk about, as we look at the tabernacle, let's talk about the reality which the pictures point to. So let's begin by talking about a slice of heaven. One of the best passages for understanding the tabernacle and the the priestly system is actually in Hebrews chapters 8 through 10. And in Hebrews chapter 8, it begins this section talking about the tabernacle, and it tells us that the tabernacle was intended, it was designed to be a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. In other words, it was a copy, it was a copy of heaven. And it was to be a little slice of heaven right here on earth. You could think of it as an embassy, an outpost of the great king. It was an earthly model of God's heavenly throne room. The tabernacle was a portable church. They would, when they moved from one place to the next in the desert, they would pack up the tabernacle and they would transport it on the backs of pack animals. But some of the items had to be carried only by hand, only by human hands. When they reached the next place where they would set up camp, they would set up the tabernacle once again, and they did this for over 500 years until the time of Solomon when the temple was finally completed. The first thing that God said to Moses before he gave him the blueprints for the tabernacle, we read it here just a second ago, chapter 25, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they would take a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. You see, to build this thing, It's going to cost a lot of money. God tells Moses, okay, so go to the people, present them this vision that I'm giving you for this tabernacle where I will dwell among you, where I will meet you in a special way and ask the people to contribute to the building of this house. You'll notice there he says, only take money from those whose hearts are moved to give. In other words, this wasn't a compulsory offering. It wasn't coerced. There was no manipulation. There was no guilt involved. God wanted it to be done by willing hearts that were excited to be part of what God was doing and wanted to help make it a reality. Moses' job was simply to present the vision that God had given him and show the people, here's what we we need in order to to build this. Here's the cost. Here are the materials that it's going to take. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple cloth, which at that time were very rare, very expensive. Scarlet yarn, fine linen, oil, spices, precious stones, all very expensive things. According to one modern estimate, the modern day value of all of the things that were needed to build this structure would have been several million dollars. Everyone could contribute something. Maybe you had some gold jewelry that you could give and it would be melted down and used for uh, the, the tabernacle. Maybe you didn't have any jewelry, but you had a goat You could donate your goat because they needed a lot of goat skins to make the outside of the tent. Maybe you didn't have a goat or jewelry, but you were able to cut down some trees. You were able to contribute in some way. No one was forced or coerced into giving. It was an invitation to contribute to the work of God and the worship of God. And this is the same attitude we see in uh, the New Testament. Paul the Apostle, he's talking to the church in Corinth and, and encouraging them to give and contribute towards a specific project and he says this in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 he says so let everyone give as he has purposed in his own heart not begrudgingly or out of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver now when I read this of course I can't help but make a parallel between that and what we're doing here at our church I'll just give you a quick update you know last August we presented a vision to you of what it would look like for us to get into our own building as a church now it's really not the most important thing to us 
But in the long term, we believe that it would help us accomplish the mission that God has given us as a church, which is to make disciples and teach God's word and reach out to our local community with the love of God and the message of the gospel. And so we took the same approach that uh, God gave Moses here in the, with the tabernacle. We presented a vision and we said, hey, no pressure, but here's how much it's going to cost and here's how you can be involved if you want to contribute to making this happen. No coercion, no pressure, no manipulation, and the response has really been incredible. You know, we originally said that we needed to raise $200,000 to have a down payment to purchase something. Uh, we've, we already had set aside $50,000 for that, so we needed $150,000. Between August and February, we raised or we received from you $90,000. That means that we are 70% of the way to meeting that goal. So we're still not there yet, but we're, you know, the response has been great. For those of you who haven't had a t- chance to look at it, I encourage you, it's on the back table. We have laid out this kind of vision and information about our vision for the future. And let me tell you, it's, a lot, it's about a lot more than just a building. A building is only a small part of it. You see, that vision statement is going to outline our vision for stuff that we are really passionate about, which is outreach and, and missions and teaching and teaching our kids and establishing a school of ministry and discipleship to raise up Christian leaders and pastors and, and missionaries. See, this section that, about contributions for the tabernacle, here's one of the things it reminds us of, is that one of the main ways that God carries out his work is through his people. One of the main ways that God carries out his work is through his people. He could do it without us, of course, but he has chosen to do it through us, which is an amazing privilege that we get to use the things that we have to be part of God's work in the world. It, here's the other thing, though. Not only is it the way that God accomplishes his work in the world, it's also one of the ways that God accomplishes his work in us. You know, one of my friends, somebody I know, he always puts it this way. I think this is brilliant. He says, you know, giving and encouraging us to be generous with what we have isn't God's way so much of raising money as it is God's way of raising kids. In other words, we're God's kids, and it's his way of teaching us and growing us up. Because, see, our God is a giving God. In fact, the story of the Bible is really the story of how God gave until he had nothing left to give. He gave everything. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, right? God so loved the world that he gave. And by teaching us to be generous with the things that we have, God is teaching us to be more like him. One of the reasons why giving is so important on a spiritual level also is because when we're generous, when you're generous with what you have, here's what it does. It prevents materialism from sinking its claws into your heart. It prevents materialism from sinking its claws into your heart. See, giving and generosity are God's antidote for the poison of materialism and consumerism that are so much a part of our culture. But check this out. When the offering was collected, we read about it in many chapters from now, in Exodus chapter 36, we read about how this offering was actually collected. Here, God is just telling Moses to take the offering. When the offering is actually collected in Exodus chapter 36, here's what happens. The people give so generously that Moses has to tell them to stop. He says, stop, enough, we can't take any more. The people gave more above and beyond what the needs were to build the tabernacle, which, as I said before, it was quite significant. I mean, it was millions of dollars. Not because they had to, but because they wanted to be part of what God was doing, building this place of worship and meeting with God. So what I'd like to do now is take you on a virtual tour of the tabernacle. And this is going to cover what we, what we read in chapters 25 through 28, and chapter 30. 
So imagine yourself, try and use your imagination here, put yourself in the shoes of a person in ancient Israel at this time who is coming to the tabernacle to worship. As you would approach the tabernacle, here's the first thing you would see. You would see a large fence with poles that are made of wood and covered in bronze. And in between them, the fence would really be made out of linen that was stretched out between the poles. This fence would be seven and a half feet high, so taller than most people's backyard fence. You wouldn't be able to see over it. I mean, maybe if you jumped or something, but generally you wouldn't be able to see over it. There would be a gate where you would be able to enter into the courtyard which this gate created, and that gate was 30 feet wide. It was made of ornate linen which was embroidered with blue and purple and scarlet threads. And as you would pass through that gate, you would enter into the courtyard of the tabernacle. Now, you've probably read some psalms that talk about the courtyard of the tabernacle. In fact, there's very many where the psalm writer says, How I long to enter your gates. How I long to be in your court. Here's one, Psalm 100, verse 4. He says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. That's what this is talking about here. In the courtyard, the very first thing you would see, the central item in the courtyard was the bronze altar. Now the bronze altar, this is the place, this is the main place of the entire complex. This is where the sacrifices were made. You wouldn't enter into the tabernacle itself to make a sacrifice. No, that was considered much too holy for a common person like you or me to enter into. Unless you were a priest, you would never enter into the tabernacle. This is as far as you would come, the bronze altar. The bronze altar was kind of a big hollow box. It was seven feet by seven feet, so it was a big square. The top and the sides of it were grates, so they were metal grates with holes in them. Kind of like, you can imagine, just kind of like a giant barbecue grill, and that's kind of the purpose it served, actually. They would set a fire inside the box, inside the altar, and then they would place the sacrifices on top of that top grate, and as it Say it was all burned up, the ashes and the blood and everything from the offering would fall through the grate and they had a way, you can read about it in the text there, that, uh, chapter 27, they had ways of cleaning it and they had special instruments which were for catching the blood and for catching the ashes. Beyond the bronze altar, if you would proceed, which most people never would, but if you did, beyond the bronze altar, there was a bronze basin, a wash basin. This basin was for ceremonial washing. And when the priests would make sacrifices, I mean, frankly, it was an extremely messy thing. There was blood everywhere. You're dealing with ashes, lots of dirt. And before they could enter the tabernacle, they had to wash themselves so that they could be clean and presentable in order to enter the sanctuary. The next thing that you would come to as you proceeded on, you would come to the entrance of the tabernacle itself. This is, we read about this in chapter 26. The only people who would enter into the tabernacle, again, were priests. The tabernacle wasn't particularly large, actually. It was only 45 feet long and 15 feet wide, so quite narrow and, and not that much longer. It was divided into two sections. The first section that you would enter first was called the holy place. Beyond that, behind another curtain, was the most holy place, also known as the holy of holies. And both the holy place and the most holy place were blocked off by thick, ornate curtains or veils. 
Now, these were very heavy. I mean, they weren't what you tend to think of when you think of a veil or a curtain. They were very thick. In fact, they were woven, they said, to be the thickness of four fingers held next to each other. So kind of the width of your hand, that's how thick these curtains were. As you enter the first room there, the holy place, on your right would be a table uh, with bread on it. It's called a table of showbread, and that table was overlaid with gold. This was ceremonial bread, which only the priests were allowed to eat. On your left, there would be a golden lampstand made of pure gold. Its design was to look like a flowering almond tree. Beyond that was the altar of incense. And this is where the priests would burn incense all day, every day, which symbolized continuous prayer ascending and rising to God. It symbolized this, that God considers our prayers and our praises, us connecting with him and speaking to him in prayer and praise, he considers it a sweet-smelling aroma, something that he takes pleasure in, something that brings him joy. And I want you to think about that for yourself too. Do you realize that? That God loves it that much when you spend time connecting with him in those ways. In Hebrews chapter 13, the writer says, So then, let us, through Jesus, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to our God that is the fruit of our lips, and giving thanks to his name. Beyond the second veil, you would enter into the most holy place, the holy of holies, the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle. And in there was found the Ark of the Covenant, which was essentially, it was essentially God's throne amongst the people of Israel. The lid on top of it, which was covered by two angels, the figure of two angels, which we're believed to, uh, you know, we don't know exactly, but ancient iconography shows that they probably had the faces of lions and they had wings that stretched out. And where those wings met, that lid was called the mercy seat. It was considered the very throne of God. And there between those two angels where their wings met, on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, this is where the most significant and important ceremonial act would take place. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 9. It describes the tabernacle and this very important ceremony which would take place only one time a year on one day, which was called Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. This is still a, a holiday that the Israeli people celebrate, but of course the, it's changed a little bit because they no longer have this sacrificial system. Here's what the, the writer of the Hebrews says about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement and the Most Holy Place. He says, Into the second section, which is the Most Holy Place, only the high priest goes, and he only but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers first for himself, and then for the unintentional sins of the people. Only the high priest, only one day a year, would be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would take the blood of the sacrifice of atonement, the sacrifice made for all the people in the nation, and he would place that blood onto the mercy seat, the throne of God, and God would show the people mercy for another year. And this brings us to the second thing that is so important for us to understand about the tabernacle, which is this, the wall of separation. As much as the tabernacle symbolized the nearness of God to the people, that God wanted to dwell among them, it also very much communicated something else. And that's this, that is no matter how close God would come to them, there would always be a wall of separation between you and God. In fact, depending on who you were, there were several walls of separation. In one way, it was as if God had come so close, and yet he was incredibly far away, distant, 
unapproachable, separated from you by a chasm which was impossible to cross. For example, you could not even enter the courtyard of the temple unless you were a member of the nation of Israel. If you were a foreigner, you would never be allowed to enter into the courtyard. In the days of King Herod, so this is the time when Jesus was alive, by, at that time they had added a second courtyard on. It was known as the court of the Gentiles. But the Gentiles were still not allowed to enter into the inner courtyard where the sacrifices were made. Even if you were Jewish and you were allowed to go into the courtyard of the tabernacle, you would never be allowed to enter into the tabernacle itself unless you were a priest, of course. And the only way to become a priest was not by wanting to be one or training to be one or studying to be one or applying to be one. You had to be born a priest. If you weren't born a priest, sorry, too bad. You will never enter into the tabernacle. Even if you were a priest, you didn't uh, just get to go in the tabernacle whenever you wanted. It was only on special occasions. And there was no guarantee that you would ever be able to enter into the most holy place, the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. No, that was reserved only for the high priest. And for him, only one day a year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when he would make the sacrifice for the sin of the nation and he would bring the blood and place it on the mercy seat. Even when the high priest did that, It was an amazing privilege, an amazing honor, but yet it came with a ton of fear and trepidation. What they used to do is they would tie a a string of bells around the high priest's waist so that they were on the outside and they could hear if he's still inside and he's moving. You see, because even the high priest himself, he's human, and his own sin had to be dealt with first before he could even enter into the most holy place. And even when they did that, they would tie these, these bells around his waist, but they would also tie a rope around his foot. Because if he goes in there and there's something going on in his life that he hasn't dealt with, some kind of sin, then he would drop dead in the presence of God before the throne of God. And then you've got a real problem if you don't have a rope tied around his ankle, right? Because what are you going to do? You're going to just leave him in there? Because think about this. You're like, okay, I'm going to go get the body of him in there. And then you go in and you die. It's just this crazy domino effect and the bodies are just piling up. So they came up with a system. We're going to tie a rope around his ankle. And if we need to, that way we can drag him out. So as much as the tabernacle communicated that God wanted to come near to the people and dwell among them, it also communicated very clearly that there was a massive and impassable wall of separation between you and God, a chasm which could not be crossed. In Isaiah chapter 59, we have an explanation of this. It says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. This is one of the key things that the tabernacle communicated. Even though God will come near to you, you can only go so close. There's a few other comments before we move on to our third point. In chapter 28, we read about the priestly garments. We have a picture of those here. See, the colors were very symbolic. Blue in the tabernacle represented deity, represented God, uh, because they were the priests were mediators between God and the people. On the chest of the priest, uh, above the heart of the priest, there were to be 12 stones, 12 precious stones, and these represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They were to bear them on their heart so that they would never forget to pray for them. Another interesting thing I want to point out to you, in the final chapter of the section, chapter 31, we read about the craftsmen who were appointed to build all these objects in the tabernacle. And there's this very interesting statement It says this in Exodus 31, verses 1 through 5. 
The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have, called, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and in cutting stones, and in carving wood, and in every craft. Here's what I want to point out to you from that. God filled this man, and then there's another man talked about after him. Same with him. God filled these people with his spirit. He gave them special abilities and special intelligence and knowledge to do what? To build stuff, to do construction, to build frames, and to to do artistic designs and to do craftsmanship. And I just want to say this real quickly. Do you know that your work matters to God? Whatever it is, I want you to know that. Your work matters to God a lot more than a lot of people would believe. Your work very much matters to God, whether you're a teacher or a lawyer, a mechanic or a contractor, whatever your job is, you need to know this. Your work matters to God, and you can serve God by doing your work and doing it well and doing it for His glory. And so I would encourage you, as we consider this, to consider how you can do your work in a way that honors God and blesses other people. But that brings us to our third point and the third thing that we need to see and understand here when we look at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was meant to be a shadow, a picture of the heavenly reality, right? So let's talk about that reality which it pointed to. Paul the Apostle explains it this way in in Colossians chapter 2. He says, the Old Testament system of worship with, with the tabernacle and the festivals and the sacrifices, he said, all of these things are shadows of that which is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So I have tons of pictures of my family on my phone. And when I go on trips, you know, sometimes I'll be gone for, for two weeks or something and I don't see my family for a while and so I enjoy pulling out my phone and looking at those pictures because they remind me of my family. But imagine what it would be like if I came home from a long trip and I hadn't seen my family in several weeks and there they are standing right in front of me, we're in the car together, we're at the airport and I completely ignore them because I'm captivated, I'm focused, I'm enthralled with these pictures of them on my phone and I'm just flipping through pictures and enjoying the pictures when they're standing right there in front of me that would be ridiculous wouldn't it I mean they are there they are the reality to which those pictures point it would be ridiculous for me to continue looking at the pictures and not just put away my phone and spend time with them because they're right there and see that's kind of what it's like with these Old Testament things The the Old Testament tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices, they're pictures that point to a coming reality, and that reality is Jesus. Did you know that more of the book of Exodus is dedicated to talking about the tabernacle than any other topic? More, like more of the the percentage-wise, more chapters are dedicated to talking about the tabernacle than any other subject in the entire book. So you might ask yourself, what is the book of Exodus about? Well, if you just go off of percentages of time allotted to certain subjects, well, then it's really about the tabernacle, isn't it? Think about this. The plagues, that was a pretty big deal, right? The plagues got five chapters of airtime. The journey out of Egypt, well, that's what the book's all about, right? Seven chapters. Seven chapters are dedicated to the journey out of Egypt. The law, well, of course, that's such a big part of the book. The law got five chapters of airtime. But 13 chapters are dedicated to talking about the temple. Apparently, this is pretty important to God. And I would venture to say that the reason it's so important to God is because the tabernacle is a picture which points to a reality, and that reality is Jesus. 
It's a picture, it's a foreshadowing of who Jesus would be and what he would come to do. That, by the way, is the big story that the Bible in all its stories is telling. The story of Jesus and how God is redeeming people and redeeming the world through this Savior. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place among the people, yet no matter how much he was among them in the tabernacle, there was always a wall of separation, a chasm between God and the people that could not be crossed. And so with the tabernacle, in one sense God was very close, but in another sense he was incredibly distant. But here's what happened when Jesus came. I want you to see this incredible thing. John, the apostle, begins his gospel in this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few sentences later, he says this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is obviously, it's the name that John is using for Jesus, because he wants the people to understand that before this person, Jesus, was born as a baby in Bethlehem. He already existed before he was called Jesus. He already existed. He always existed because he is God. And this is who Jesus is, John is saying. Here's who Jesus is. He is God who has come and taken on human flesh in order to dwell among us. And here's the crazy thing. You know that word dwell there? It doesn't come across so much in our language, but it literally means to dwell in a tent. In other words, you could say it this way. In Jesus, God came and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle, God's dwelling place, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus and who he would be and what he would come to do. And every single element of it points to an aspect of who Jesus is and what he came to do. The priests who mediated between God and the people, that is precisely what Jesus came to do for us. The sacrifices that were made to atone for the sins of the people, that is what Jesus came to be for us in his death on the cross. He is the ultimate atoning sacrifice for our sins. He paid the price for our sins once and for all. Hebrews chapter 9 puts it this way. It says, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have now come, he entered in once and for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify and purify them from their sins or purify their flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience? from dead works to serve the living God. The table of bread, it speaks of Jesus who is the bread of life, who sustains our bodies and who gives life to our souls. The basin of water speaks of Jesus as the one who cleanses us and makes us presentable and acceptable before God. The lampstand speaks of Jesus as the light of the world who drives out the darkness. The altar of incense, it speaks of Jesus who is the one who makes constant intercession for us on our behalf before the Father. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus was having dinner, his last dinner, with his disciples. And he told them some news that they didn't want to hear. They, they knew it was coming, but they weren't ready for it quite yet. Jesus told his disciples that he would be going away. And they were absolutely crushed by this news. But Jesus told them, I know that it's hard for you to comprehend this right now. I know it's hard for you to believe this right now. But it's actually better for you if I go away. 
Because if I go away, I will send you the Holy Spirit to help you and to guide you and to teach you. And he said, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, until now, he has been with you. But very soon, he will also be in you. And what was Jesus talking about? The next day, Jesus hung on the cross on that hill called Calvary, and we read this, that as he breathed his last breath and died, the veil of the temple which separated the holy place from the most holy place, that inner sanctuary, it was ripped in two from top to bottom. That curtain that hung 30 feet up in the air, that curtain that was as thick as your hand is wide, it was ripped in two, not from the bottom, where people would grab it, but from the top. In other words, it was an act of God. It was his way of saying, the wall of separation has now been removed. I removed it. The way into my presence is now open. Come on in. Anyone who would come, anyone who will, you're welcome to come in because the things which formerly stood as a barrier between you and me have been taken away by Jesus. He took them upon himself. He paid the price for them once and for all, and there's nothing more that remains to be done. Hebrews chapter 10, the the author says, Brothers, in light of this, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. But here's the thing. In Jesus, God didn't just come to dwell among us. He came to dwell in us. When the veil of the temple was ripped in two, God was saying, now the wall of separation has been removed. No longer will I just dwell among you, but I will now actually dwell in you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul the Apostle says, Christian, don't you know, don't you understand that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says, you, like living stones, are being built up together into a spiritual house, a holy habitation, a place for the dwelling of God. He says, now you are his dwelling place. He says, you are that royal priesthood. You are those priests called to mediate to others the excellencies of who God is and what he's done. See, this is the message of the gospel. This is the message that we gather to reflect on and celebrate week in and week out is that this, that God, that between God and every human person, there is a wall of separation that is higher and greater than you can even imagine. Between every person and God, there is an impassable chasm, wider and deeper than the Grand Canyon. But God loves you so much that he came himself in order to make a door through that wall, in order to make a bridge across that chasm. And that bridge, that door, his name is Jesus. And because of what he did for you through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, you can be accepted by God, forgiven and cleansed, and you can draw near to God. But even more than that, God will make his dwelling place in you, redeeming you and transforming you from the inside out. Your part in that is to say yes, Yes, God, thank you for what you've done for me. I receive it, and I ask you to do that in my life, to come into my life, to cleanse me, to redeem me, to dwell within me, and to use me for your purposes and your glory. Today, whether for the first time or the 500th time, I urge you to receive his grace towards you and ask him to do that work in your life. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you 
for your grace towards us that we see a picture of here. We see a picture of the mercy. We see a picture of how there's this great gap, this great distance, this wall of separation. No matter how close you might come to us, there's still a separation that needs to be dealt with. But we thank you for this great message of the gospel that in Jesus you came and tabernacled among us. You dwelt among us. But even more than that, Lord, that you made a way for us to become your dwelling place. I pray for anyone here today who says, you know what, I want that in my life. I want God to enter into my life. I want him to transform me. I want him to use me. I want that. Lord, I pray that they would receive your grace to them today. I pray that all of us would receive your grace for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.